Hey, unfuckers, here are the ways you can get in touch with us. Subscribe for free on Substack at unftr.substack.com to access the essays these episodes are framed around. Follow us on Twitter at unftrpod. Flash the bat signal into the sky. Or visit the website unftrpod.com where you can buy us a cup of coffee. That's right. Top right corner of the site, you can buy the whole unfucking team a cup of coffee. 100% of the proceeds literally go towards jacking us up on caffeine so we can keep pumping out hot, steaming piles of unfucking fresh episodes. No affiliate links, mattress coupon codes, or meal kit promos. Just coffee. A direct payment into our coffee fund like a stimulus payment right into our fucking veins. And guess what? Even if you don't buy us coffee, that's okay. Literally, nothing will change. So you can just keep listening anonymously, doing your thing, and be like, this is great, I don't even have to pay for this shit. Fuck them. I'll never know. Anywho, stay tuned to listener shoutouts at the end of the episode, and now, on to the show. The year is 1830. In his third year in the U.S. Senate, 48-year-old Daniel Webster was debating Robert Hayne over the future of the Union. Webster's speech lasted two days and was transcribed and distributed all over the nation. The issue at hand was nullification, which pitted the North versus the South in a precursor to the Civil War, a massively important procedural and constitutional issue. Here's the last paragraph of Webster's speech, considered by many to be the finest ever delivered in Congress. When my eyes shall be turned to behold for the last time the sun in heaven, may I not see him shining on the broken and dishonored fragments of a once glorious union, on states dissevered, discordant, belligerent, on land rent with civil feuds or drenched, it may be, in fraternal blood. Let their last feeble and lingering glance rather behold the gorgeous ensign of the Republic, now known and honored throughout the earth, still full high advanced, its arms and trophies streaming into their original luster, not a stripe erased or polluted, not a single star obscured, bearing for its motto no such miserable interrogatory as, what is all this worth? Nor those other words of delusion and folly, liberty first and union afterwards. But everywhere, spread over in characters of living light, blazing on all its ample folds as they float over the sea and over the land and in every wind and under the whole heavens, that other sentiment dear to every true American heart, liberty and union, now and forever, one and inseparable. From this, dear unfuckers, to this, 190 years later. I never, ever considered uh, to run for Congress or even get involved in politics. As a matter of fact, I wasn't a political person until I found a candidate that I really liked, and his name is Donald J. Trump when he ran for president. Thank you, Marjorie Taylor Greene, for those inspiring words. Congress is better with you in it. Life is better with you in it. Kind of makes me want to join a gym in your district. Is your wife a goer, eh? Know what I mean? Know what I mean? Nuts, nuts, know what I mean? Say no more. Our task at hand this week on Fuckers is to answer the seminal question of our time. What will it take to unfuck Congress? We'll take a breezy trip through history, highlight some good elected officials and some real shitbags, examine if and how Congress is more fucked up than it used to be, and dive into how this particular Congress has a shot to fix the whole fucking mess. Oh, my friends, we are fucked. Deliciously, unreservedly, catastrophically fucked. And not the good kind. 
We'll traverse this audio journey together to upend conventional wisdom, blow up narratives on the left, right, and middle, and use magical devices like facts, logic, and reason to explain how exactly we arrived in Bizarro America, the funhouse mirror version of what was originally intended. So, President Trump held a rally outside of the White House. Throngs of supporters heeded his call to march down Pennsylvania Avenue to the Capitol building to stop the certification of the presidential election. We now know that he was watching it unfold and tweeting his support for the protesters by chiding his loyal vice president who was in imminent danger. They targeted certain Congress members with specific threats. As we discussed in the insurrection episode, this was hardly a coup, but it was an attempt to violently disrupt Congress. People died. And the U.S. Senate acquitted the man who invited them, gathered them, directed them, encouraged, applauded them, and then said, I love you to them? That's fucked up. The question at hand is, was government always this fucked up? Well, the quick answer is yes. I'm not sure if this is heartening or disheartening. Unfuckers, I share your rage at the cowardice in the Senate and the complete inability of the Democratic Party to grasp that the rules of engagement have fundamentally changed. There are three issues at play here that really matter. Three Ps. People, process, and power. The House and Senate are made up of people, fallible people with varying backgrounds, different experiences and perspectives, and disparate levels of ability. The process has stayed mostly the same, but it has changed in some very fundamental procedural ways that we'll cover. Lastly, the mechanisms of power might have changed, but the ones pulling the levers haven't changed a bit. So let's talk about the people. There are 435 of us. We're nothing more than a slice of America. And people come, with, regardless of party labels, they come with all kinds of beliefs and ideas. Uh, it's it's the, the melting pot of America. That's former House Speaker John Boehner. Remember him? chain-smoking, crying-ass motherfucker who helped block Obama's agenda in the House? Now, in hindsight, he seems pretty reasonable compared to today's standards. Boehner's a funny, middling figure in recent congressional history. Sandwiched between the Gingrich era and whatever the fuck we want to call today, Boehner's efforts to bring a level of camaraderie and decorum to the House was undone by the insurgent triumvirate of young guns riding the Tea Party wave. Eric Cantor, Paul Ryan, and Kevin McCarthy. McCarthy is the only douche nozzle left in Congress, of course. You know, the one who just visited Mar-a-Lago to ask Trump whether he's supposed to wipe from front to back or back to front. This luminary was part of the trio of U.S. representatives that made Boehner's job impossible and shut down the House while Mitch McConnell obstructed the Senate to ensure that the last six years of Obama's presidency would be a complete and utter nothing burger legislatively. That period was probably the most needlessly partisan example of obstructionism that the country has ever seen in terms of parliamentary rule. But it's far from the worst example of obstructionism over the most important issue that our nation has ever faced. And I'm speaking, of course, about the creation of Space Force. To establish a Space Force as the sixth branch of the armed forces. That's a big statement. Yeah, just kidding. I'm talking about slavery. The actual legalized ownership of another human being and the lawful mechanisms that allowed a form of it to endure from Jim Crow laws to mass incarceration. Whenever you hear a pundit talking about the most dysfunctional legislative body in history, remind them that for the first 100 years of our union, 
Congress literally protected slavery. But those were men of their times. Hey, good point, asshole. You know who else were men of their times? Abolitionists. There is no moral argument, never has been, that could possibly reconcile the concept of slavery. Yeah, but the rhetoric today is just so toxic. Really? Well, how about this little ditty from history? On May 22, 1856, Senator Preston Brooks of South Carolina, of course, walked into the Senate chamber and proceeded to lay a beating on Massachusetts Senator Charles Sumner so fucking bad it almost killed him. He bludgeoned Sumner with a walking cane because he was an abolitionist who criticized slave owners in a speech. So yeah, we're a little less fucked up today in that respect than we used to be. That's not to say we haven't produced some winning moments in the modern era. If you believe this is a bad idea to provide health care, then vote no! That's former Congressman Anthony Weiner screaming at Republican colleagues over what was actually a pretty important issue at the time. Of course, this was before he sent pictures of his erect penis to several underage girls on social media. But, you know, he got in trouble for that, and he paid his price. And he was really, really sorry. Until he did it again. Anywho, there are some smart motherfuckers in Congress. Reps in the House like Ro Khanna in California and Marcy Kaptur of Ohio. Renegade Republican Adam Kinzinger, the subject of a recent New York Times piece about his ongoing refusal to support Donald Trump. Senator Amy Klobuchar, who's one of the most effective legislators in recent memory. Squad members Elon Omar and Ayanna Presley, or the Vermont twins Bernie Sanders and Patrick Leahy. Even Senator Ben Sass of Nebraska. I don't see eye to eye with him on a whole lot, but he's fucking smart and very reasonable. Of course, being smart doesn't guarantee good policy or a lack of corruption, as we know from Ted Cruz, who himself is a pretty highly educated cat. Bottom line is that we do have some good, thoughtful people in Congress. But in today's media culture, we tend to focus on the outrageous who will say anything for a soundbite. Like weirdo Matt Gates, who's really pushing his 15 minutes of fame. He's a Florida congressperson because, again, of course he is. And I know it's really infantile to say this, but dude actually looks like Butthead from Beavis and Butthead. (laughs) Seriously, if you haven't seen the memes comparing the two, it's fucking great. (laughs) Apart from being the number one Trump sycophant, he's just generally one of the douchiest, most mean-spirited people to ever breathe air. Here he is speaking from the floor of the House trying to take down Hunter Biden. I can handle things. I'm smart. I'm like everybody says. Like dumb, I'm smart, and I want to spend. Ah, shit. Wrong clip. Uh, here you go. And I don't want to make light of anybody's substance abuse issues. I know the president's working real hard to solve those throughout the country. But it's a little hard to believe that Barisma hired Hunter Biden to resolve their international disputes when he could not resolve his own dispute with Hertz rental car over leaving cocaine and a crack pipe in the car. That's pretty shitty, right? Well, Representative Hank Johnson of Georgia had something to say about that. Uh, Mr. Chairman, I rise in opposition to this amendment, and I would say that uh, the pot calling the kettle black is not something that we should do. Johnson's reference to the pot calling the kettle black here was a not-so-thinly-veiled reference to Gates's trouble with alcohol and his own DUI arrest. Way to go, Hank Johnson. Boy, Georgia's been killing it lately, huh? Okay, I can't resist. While Johnson has a pretty tight clap back here, I would be remiss if I didn't bring up quite possibly the greatest political YouTube highlight in history, courtesy of good old Hank Johnson himself. 
Here he is talking to Admiral Robert Willard about the danger of moving so many service people to a base on one end of Guam. Yeah, my, my fear is that uh, the whole island will uh, become so overly populated that it will tip over and, uh, and capsize. <laughs> Okay, back on track here. Sorry, we're a bit giddy here at Unfucking HQ. So, we've always had pieces of shit in Congress that defended concepts like slavery. This we know. But it does seem like we're a wee less erudite than we used to be. Remember that movie Multiplicity, where Michael Keaton keeps cloning himself because he doesn't have enough time to get things done? Only each new version of himself is slightly more fucked up than the one before? Well, that's a lot of Congress. Each new Congress seems to be a slightly degraded, cheaper version of the one before. I mean, try to imagine a congressperson from, I don't know, any time in history saying this. Okay, I mean, is it going to be true that the child pedophilia in the elites in the Washington, D.C., is that what we're really going to see come out? Is it true? Is the type of corruption we're going to see come out? Is it going to be satanic worship that possibly all these people are involved in? Yeah, MTG said that shit. And we elected her to Congress. That's nonsense you might expect from a shitheel Republican down south, though, right? Then again, here's a former Senate Democrat talking about criminals. It doesn't matter whether or not they were deprived as a youth. It doesn't matter or not whether or not they had no background that enabled them to have to uh, become uh, uh, social, uh, become socialized into the fabric of society. It doesn't matter whether or not they're the victims of society. The end result is they're about to knock my mother on the head with a lead pipe, shoot my sister, beat up my wife, take on my sons. Yeah, Biden said that shit, and we elected him president. Let's talk about process. When people refer to the legislative process as sausage making, it's a fairly accurate assessment. In a culture that values immediate gratification, watching bills get passed into law can be excruciating. Unfuckers of a certain age will remember when congresspeople had actual sausage to dole out. They used to have slush funds called pork that they could use to deliver programs in their districts. It was great for certain districts, but it gave too much power to incumbents who abused it. This is why we can't have nice things, Barry. You asshole! Anyway, it can take years for legislation to be enacted, with most bills never even making it out of committee. The big stuff Congress gets done is typically mandated. It's why you see both sides try to append their darling pieces of legislation to omnibus bills. But sometimes even these don't make it through the reconciliation process between the houses. So to most of us, the legislative process sounds something like this. It's perfectly simple. If you're not getting your hair cut, you don't have to move your brother's clothes down to the lower peg. You simply collect his note before lunch, after you've done your scripture prep, when you've written your letter home before rest, move your own clothes onto the lower peg, greet the visitors, and report to Mr. Viney that you've had your chits signed. In the broadest terms, the House is the representative body meant to bring district-level concerns to bear. The two-year terms, though, in the House means that there's more legislative fervor and anxiety over getting things done. Senators have six years, which reduces performance anxiety by design. Plus, the Senate was intended to be a, quote, cooling mechanism for the House and is considered the more deliberative body. Members of both houses are prone to speaking about the awesome sense of history and grandeur in the halls of Congress. Love them or hate them, most of them have demonstrated an appropriate sense of appreciation for the institution and hallowed halls of our republic. 
there was a sense of respect for norms and a willingness to compromise. Members met in the adjoining cloakrooms and made deals. They ate together, drank together, and certainly caroused together. Look at us. Hey, look at us. Look at us. Huh? Who would have thought? But this convivial relationship too often masked our worst policies. Jim Crow, Indian Removal Act, the Sedition Act, Japanese internment camps, the Patriot Act. So this isn't an attempt to absolve these actions. Rather, it's intended to demonstrate that among the members of Congress, there was a willingness to collaborate, compromise, and co-sponsor. And that if you widen the lens just broad enough, the longer trend line of our very small history has moved slightly up into the right toward progressivism. There are so many important players and moments that have contributed to the so-called norms in Congress. But there is one person who really changed the character of the House in such a profound way that it haunts us to this day. So, ladies and gentlemen, would you please join me in welcoming the former Speaker of the House, the Honorable Newt Gingrich. Ah, Newt. Never has a man with such a stupid fucking name had such an outsized influence on the way the nation governs. Newt Gingrich was first elected in 1978 and worked his way up through the ranks over the next 15 years to ultimately take over as Speaker in 1994. Now, by this time, Newt was tired of the back and forth in Congress and how Republicans, in his view, continued to capitulate on important issues. So he set about implementing a scorched-earth policy of obstructionism, the likes of which Congress had never seen before. As you know, this is a narrative editorial podcast and not a news show. But Unfucking the Republic scored an interview with Gingrich to ask why he would act in such a destructive manner. And here's what he had to say. When Newt Gingrich decided to introduce brinksmanship into routine congressional matters, he was largely chastised by colleagues and the media. He was a detestable figure in and around Washington, but his strategy was extremely effective. In an article in The Atlantic, Norm Ornstein, a political scientist who knew Gingrich, said his idea was to build toward a national election where people were so disgusted by Washington and the way that it operated that they would throw the ins out and bring the outs in. Political historians now credit Gingrich for accomplishing this objective, with many saying that without Gingrich, there would be no such thing as Trump. Most Americans don't need much incentive to hate the government, and Gingrich fanned the flames of discontent like never before. He brought legislation to a standstill, and though he was ultimately booted from leadership when it was discovered he was having an affair with a staffer, the damage was done and the Republicans learned a valuable lesson in governing, that they don't have to govern, or even win the presidency, to wield the ultimate power. When you acknowledge that the entire ethos of Congress is built on compromise, then you can begin to understand how Gingrich did more to undermine the political process in this country than perhaps anyone before or since. Ah, actually, there is one guy. If you want to play games, set yet another precedent that you'll no doubt come to regret. Say to my friends on the other side of the aisle, you'll regret this, and you may regret it a lot sooner than you think. There's my guy. The new master of the Senate, who looks like a turtle fucked a potato. Mitch McConnell was able to sell Americans that the Senate impeachment trial shouldn't happen while Trump was in office, and then voted to acquit him because Trump was no longer in office, while also stating that he thought he was guilty. This, my friends, is a masterclass in gaslighting and the type of outmaneuvering McConnell has been doing to the Democrats since he announced that his top priority in Obama's first term was to ensure that he didn't have a second. 
While he was specifically unsuccessful in this respect, he was able to scuttle virtually all of Obama's legislative agenda. But we shouldn't judge McConnell simply on his ability to manipulate Senate rules. After all, he's also the proud senior representative of the great state of Kentucky, where 17% of Kentuckians live in poverty, which places McConnell's state at a smooth 46 out of 50. The winning doesn't stop there. According to U.S. News & World Report, Kentucky is ranked 36th in infant mortality rates, 36 in pollution, 44 in employment, 45 in long-term fiscal stability, and 47 in healthcare quality. But hey, they've got great bourbon and the Derby. Holy shit! Oh, God. Well, that got dark fast. Disclaimer, no animals were harmed during the making of this podcast. Okay, something to add to the reading list on fuckers. Check out Kill Switch by Adam Gentleson. I got through it in a couple of days and I highly recommend it because it breaks down the history of the filibuster in an accessible way and with great first-hand insight. It really helps explain how, first of all, the filibuster is not a founding father invention. It's a southern racist tactic popularized by John Calhoun and expanded through the 19th and 20th centuries, almost always for the purpose of stifling progress on issues of civil and voting rights. One of the things Gentleson does best in the book, by the way, is explaining how the filibuster is exactly the opposite of what the founders wanted, including an anecdote of old James Madison literally saying as much directly to Calhoun. Kind of a problem when the guy claiming the founding fathers would have wanted it this way finds out that one of the founding fathers is still alive. I'm not dead. What? Nothing. Here's your nine puts. I'm not dead. Yeah. He says he's not dead. Yes, he is. I'm not. Today, we equate the filibuster with McConnell because no one, not even the Southern racists from yesteryear, used it to the extreme extent and level of success as McConnell. He effectively turned the minority into the majority by forcing nearly every single bill to stand up to the 60-vote threshold. So we tend to think of the filibuster as a tool in the pocket of leadership, which isn't entirely accurate. In fact, the concept of majority and minority leaders is only 100 years old itself. And the relationship between the two roles was intended to be productive and was largely considered so until the most recent Congresses. Even old Bob Dole, who alternated between majority and minority leader over a 12-year period, famously said, quote, We never surprise each other on the floor, end quote. Such was the collaborative intent of this framework. It's more of a modern invention that only the leaders determine policy and legislation with the expectation that all caucus members are to fall in line. Legislative victories never come easy and are usually attacked the moment they're codified. Emancipation was met with Jim Crow. The Voting Rights Act was met with voter suppression tactics. Glass-Steagall was unbound by decades of deregulation. Social Security was undermined by Reagan, as we outlined in our recent Reagan episode. It seems that for every progressive action, there's an equal and opposite regressive response. The hope is that the tide turns in your favor in the long run, and that the swinging pendulum slows and never touches the furthest reaches of the past. Taking stock of where we are, we know now that procedural fuckery, most notably the filibuster, was created and popularized by Southern racists looking to maintain the status quo of repression in America. Even still, we got things done. Slowly, but we got them done because representatives and senators were able to reach across the aisle and make deals. Then Newt came along and stripped Congress of civility, so things got shittier and the element of compromise disappeared. The other important development not to be overlooked is the multi-decade effort on the part of Republicans to win at the state level and gerrymander districts to ensure that they could hold legislative sway in the House. 
super, super important tactic that Democrats have failed to prevent for the longest time. And despite all of this, we pushed through things in the modern era like marriage equality and the Affordable Care Act. And then Mitch McConnell put the fucking brakes on everything by whipping out the filibuster more than Anthony Weiner whipped out his dick on Instagram. But that wasn't all, folks. On top of gerrymandering and the filibuster, something far more sinister happened a decade ago that left unchecked will render the remediation of these other procedural hurdles null and void. Because of the most misguided, naive, uninformed, egregious decision of the United States Supreme Court, I think, in the 21st century, um, to somehow view money as not having an effect on election, a corrupting effects on, effect on election flies in the face of reality. Unfuckers know what John McCain's talking about here. Citizens fucking united, baby. Money. Money makes the world go around, the world go around, the world go around. Money makes the world go around, it makes the world go round. The Democrats can kill the filibuster. People like Marjorie Taylor Greene can be stripped of their committees. We can balance the equation on gerrymandering. The pendulum of procedural power and process will always swing, but the question is whether or not the party in charge of progress will have the guts, backing, and willingness to do the two most important things they can to preserve democracy, repeal Citizens United, and institute real campaign finance reform. Now, I know most, if not all, unfuckers are familiar with Citizens United, but in the event you ever want to pass this along to someone who just doesn't fucking understand how badly Citizens United fucked up our politics, I've invited a child to break it down. Go ahead, sweetie. Tell the unfuckers in your own big girl voice what this is all about. In 2010, the Supreme Court decided that corporations could spend money on political advertising and that they had the same rights as people under the First Amendment, as long as someone running for office didn't help them make the commercials. Until 2010, political action committees, called PACs, were only allowed to raise small amounts of money. But then another decision after that said that corporations could give as much as they wanted to the PACs and that they didn't have to tell anyone who gave them that money. Then they started calling them super PACs. Now they raise a lot of money from rich people and companies without telling anyone who they are. And they make bad commercials that say mean things about people running for office. In a New York Times op-ed, former New York Congressman Steve Israel, who was very high in the ranks of the Democratic caucus prior to his resignation, said out loud what others in Congress wouldn't say. In the op-ed, he says that from the time he was elected, quote, I've spent roughly 4,200 hours in call time, attended more than 1,600 fundraisers just for my own campaign, and raised nearly 20 million in increments of 1,000, 2,500, and 5,000 per election cycle. And things have only become worse in the five years since the Supreme Court's Citizens United decision, which ignited an explosion of money in politics, end quote. So where does this leave us? Well, one of the things I try to provide on Unfucking the Republic is context. With so many Americans freshly tuned to the political process, misinformation abounds abetted by a lack of historical perspective. Up until this point with the podcast, I've admittedly fallen short on providing some prescriptive action items that accompany the topics we tackle. Now, in fairness, context is the first part of the prescription. Developing a shared language by understanding history is how you begin the process of remediation and healing. Plus, it's always fun to know shit that others don't, because if you're anything like me, you like to win arguments. So here's our first collective effort that we can all take a part in. To begin, 
Don't be these people. You know, Americans complain a lot about Congress, but I wonder, do we really know what we're complaining about? Do we even know who we are complaining about? So today we came up with a game to find out. We went out on the street, we said, name a member of Congress and we'll give you a cookie. And here's how that went. Name a member of Congress and I'll give you a cookie. Ryan Ryan Sebus. Sean Spicer. Barbara Walters. John Gilbert. Name one of the Rice Krispies guys and I'll give you half a cookie. Snap. There is no fucking way that you've made it this far into this podcast if you can't name a member of Congress, nor would you be a true on fucker. But that's not the important takeaway. Don't worry about learning all the members. It's a fool's errand. What's important is that you know your congressperson. Find your congressperson, get a staffer's email from their webpage, and a local district phone number. Now, we're currently in the 117th Congress. Every congressperson has a bill in front of them called H.R. 1. It's carrying the number one because it's the first fucking bill introduced this session, even though most of it was written in the prior Congress and forms of it existed before. H.R. 1 is sponsored by Representative John Sarbanes, who knows a thing or three about getting legislation passed, even if it's only to piss off accountants. And there's an accompanying bill in the Senate as well. Here is the stated purpose. To expand Americans' access to the ballot box, reduce the influence of big money in politics, strengthen ethics rules for public servants, and implement other anti-corruption measures for the purpose of fortifying our democracy. I've included a link to the text of the bill in the show notes. And as of this recording, there are 217 co-sponsors on the bill. And yes, they're all Democrats because fucking the, shit, the fucking course they are. <sighs> Democrats have the ability to kill the filibuster if they have the fucking guts to do it. They also have the ability to unwind much of the last decade of gerrymandering, though that's a much more complex issue. It's not every state operates on the same timeline and the pandemic fucked up the delivery of the census, blah, blah, blah. But again... It's above our ability right now to influence. But literally, none of this will fucking matter if we don't start to pressure our congressional representatives, especially you on fuckers that live in a Republican district, to get on board with H.R. 1. It's arcane, it seems unlikely, kind of fucking boring and all that, but it is literally the single most important issue that faces us because unless and until we get dark money, super PACs, and lobbyists out of the system, nothing will fucking change, and the lizard people will take over. I threw that in in case you're a Q member and you got all this way. Generations past have fought more glorious battles. I know. Being on the right side of the civil rights movement, for example, is a lot fucking cooler than being like, in my day, we saved democracy by changing campaign finance requirements. But it's literally that important. We might still elect idiots and assholes, and there will always be procedural fuckery that makes you want to puke. And Mitch McConnell will always be a potato turtle fuckface. But we, the people will finally reclaim our rightful place in this democracy and have our voices heard. Here endeth the lesson. A few thank yous, notes, and shout-outs to round out the show today. First off, a huge thanks to my man Cass down in South Carolina, who himself could be a broadcast producer. Jacob F. on Long Island. Young man, as you go through school, make sure you read Howard Zinn's People's History of the United States in tandem with how they teach you American history. Lisa H. in Vermont, I miss you. And if you see Bernie and his mittens, give him a hug for us. My new buddy Nikki down in Florida. 
You're too good for Florida. Oh, and if you see Matt Gates, be sure to give him a kick in the nuts for us. Christian G, thank you for the Facebook love. Sam Cam 14 D Med 303 Brexit 2016 and Leisure Lotion? The fuck is that? Thank you all so much for the pod reviews. I think you're all five stars too. And lastly, thank you to Jay at Best of the Left for your support and collaboration. Unfucking the Republic is produced by Manny Faces Media. The show is hosted and distributed by none of your fucking business. Visit unftrpod.com, subscribe for free to our essays at unftr.substack.com, and follow us on Twitter at unftrpod. Now, go unfuck yourselves and have a great day.